0: To uh, Job chapter thirty-eight, and if you guys have been here for uh, for our study through the Book of Job, we are we are getting closer and closer to the end. Um, I think we have like maybe two or three messages left in the Book of Job, and uh, um, that's pretty cool. We've been in Job for like ten years. No, we have we have been in Job. I think for about a year. It hasn't been that long, and hopefully, it has been enriching to you. It has been a challenge for me. I mean, it's Hebrew. It's Hebrew poetry. I don't even like English poetry, you know. This is this is this is good stuff, though. And um, hopefully, uh, it has been um, an encouragement to faith and to looking to the majesty of our God. Um, take time when you get a chance today, just to appreciate all the different guys on the worship team and what they do. Uh, I thought they did a good job in just kind of ushering us into the Lord's presence and thinking about him because that is the appropriate place to be as we look at this message that that comes on the second half of God's first response to Job um this is God's answer right uh his first answer he will give two speeches and in this first speech last week we looked at the issue of who governs creation remember um, and we said that God was asking through the through the, the 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 truth of God's creation in the earth and in the heavens. He's asking Job a number of rhetorical questions to get Job to think and to think carefully. He asked him stuff like, "Do you know what it was like at the foundation or the creation of the universe, when the sons of man were shouting and when the stars were singing?" He asked him, can you contain the dangers of the universe? Like with all the things that are kind of wild and woolly and is dangerous, do, do you keep them in check? Can you command the light to overcome the darkness? Have you walked the deep part of the seas? Have you walked into and in front of the gates of death itself? Do you know where light comes from, where its dwelling is? Have you harnessed the storms and its power? Have you invented the water cycle or formed water for the life-giving nature it gives to the world? Do you govern the stars and do you command right, everything that gives life? Those are the questions that God asked Job to consider from all of creation. And this, uh, this second half God will focus particularly on the question, who governs every creature, right? Who governs every animal, every creature, everything that has been made? Remember, the, the key issue in Job is not that he has sinned, not not before his tribulation, right? We, we have established, I think, what his friends could not believe that Job was a righteous man who did not deserve this suffering, and yet suffering has come to him. So it wasn't sin that resulted or that caused his suffering, but in the midst of his suffering, he has been tempted towards sin. I I imagine that's many of us, especially in some of the circumstances we find ourselves in, not, not of our own making. There's sometimes we are in bad circumstances, and it is our own making, and we should own that, we should, we should submit to that, and we should take responsibility for what we've done wrong. But sometimes things happen in our lives, in this broken world, that has nothing to do with anything we've done. Whether it's an illness, whether it's a layoff, whether it's, it's individuals that have taken advantage of you, or bad things that have occurred to you or to loved ones. Things have happened, and the question there is not, who sinned, right? Right? their parents or this blind man so that he has been born blind Jesus says that's not the point you're missing it entirely right God is still in control and God is gracious and loving like what you're not understanding is it's not sin that led to this but this 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 trouble this trial can lead you into sin isn't that just like us and isn't that just like Job So Job's questioning of God, his complaint to God, is, God, do you know what you're doing? Wicked people are celebrating in the streets, and your righteous ones are suffering. God, do you have a handle on the universe? Because you're supposed to be good and sovereign and powerful, but why do good people suffer? He's asking questions that we dare to ask. He's asking questions that run very, very closely to our own hearts and souls when we are suffering. And underlying that complaint, underlying those questions, is a wisdom or counsel that is darkened by lack of knowledge. God, do you know what you're doing? And God's response to Job is, well, isn't that just... Not only do I know what I'm doing, his response is, Job, do you know well enough to ask the right questions? Are you knowledgeable? Is your wisdom complete enough that you can ask what you need to ask? Do you understand how the universe is governed? There is in God a wisdom. Now, wisdom we should separate from just knowledge, right? Right? There is in God a wisdom, and what we mean by wisdom is usually knowledge applied. And the doctrine of God's wisdom, I thought Wayne Grudem says it well, it speaks this way. God's wisdom, the fact that God has the attribute of wisdom, means that God always chooses, always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals This definition goes beyond the idea of God knowing all things and specifies that God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always will bring about the best results from God's ultimate perspective. That needs to be underlined. And they will bring about those results through the best possible means. It it requires faith to believe that. It requires faith to believe that when you are the one that is suffering. And I think this is God's point. We need to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we should acknowledge him so that he might make straight our paths. And that doesn't mean that God makes everything easy. It means that God gives us clear direction and where to go. We should not be wise in our own eyes. We should fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. That's from Proverbs 3 5 through 8. And I think that's the proper application for who God is. God's answer is not direct. God, why are you letting these things happen? God doesn't say, oh, okay, because number one, this will happen, and then your story is going to help these millions of people, generations later, to understand how majestic I am, right? And also, your wife, you know, she needs to kind of get a little corrective here. And these, do you remember that guy that you, you buy grain from? That guy needs a, He doesn't give him a direct response. These are the reasons why. He gives him a kind of an overview governance of because I am wise, because I could do things that no human, no creature can do. Because I know and I juggle a billion things at once and I don't drop anything. And everything has an intention and purpose. And because I am sovereign God, it all heads in a direction that will glorify me and bring praise and gladness to those that believe in me. This is the issue it's not whether or not God is being fair. It's not whether or not God is doing this, God is doing that. The question is, will we believe in a God that is all-wise and has everything under His control? So this is the second part. Who governs every creature? Let me read it to you quickly, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack it. Job 38, starting in verse 39. Job 38, starting in verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for the lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the, the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the with, in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return to your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich are proud, are wave proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom, given her no share in understanding. Yet she rouses herself to flee, and she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley and exults, and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high on the rock? He dwells and makes his home on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eye beholds it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He argues with God. Let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will not proceed. I will proceed no further. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your creativity, at the animals and the birds and the things that you have made to walk upon this earth. But Lord, in it, Lord, it is... Uh, as an illustration not just of, of, of how broad your creative works can be but the sustenance you provide to every animal the balance of life of predator and prey of life and death Lord who is knowledgeable or wise enough to balance these things help us Father to look to you and recognize you as our holy 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 God and in seeing your holiness to recognize our unworthiness and to at the same time embrace with thankfulness your love and mercy to us. Lord, help us not to fashion you into our image or the things we want, but to recognize you for the God that you are so that we find ourselves to be the creation, not the creator, and we look to you, Lord, for the wisdom that we could never contain. We praise you for all that you reveal to us. And Lord, even as you are are rebuking Job for his arrogance and demanding to know things that are above him, would you also forgive us for our pride in thinking that we have taken handle of everything concerning you in this life. Help us to submit to our sovereign Lord because he is powerful, because he is good, and because the evidence of his love is that he has sent Christ to pay for our sins and rescue us. So we praise you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, it's pretty simple. The bulk of what we're going to be looking at is this idea of the wildness of all God's creatures. And then we'll be looking shortly at God's challenge, a brief challenge to Job, right? We already read it, calling him the fault finder, and Job's short response in recognizing his smallness Inside of who God is. But let's start with the, this idea of God, the wildness of all of God's creatures, everything that God has made. And we begin with this balance, this balance between life and death, or the balance of death for life, death for the sake of life. We begin with predators, right? In verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? And then secondly, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? And a couple things we want to kind of drink in here is how deeply wild the creation is as far as God's creatures. We're talking about undomesticated creatures. That's why we're using the term wild. Those that wander without any influence of mankind. They're outside our manicured fields, protective fences. They're not in our realm of control. And yet God governs them. He controls them. And here, verses 39 through 41, says that he provides for them. Do, do, do you see that? The question is not, you know, have you seen the lion hunt for his prey? It's, it's can you hunt the prey for the lion? in order to satisfy the appetite of the young lions. You see, the question is, have you, do you understand how to manage this deeply wild universe of creatures, of predators and prey in such a way that you, that you provide? And don't you, don't you appreciate that tension? Right? It's about lions. And what do we know about lions? Well, they're, they're, the, they're primary predators. They, they kill things and eat them. But look at the second part of verse 39. Can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Of the lion cubs? Right? Same thing with 41. Who provides, right? Again, who's the provider of the prey for the raven? And then the second part of verse 41. And the young ravens that cry to God for help and wander around because they lack food. So can you appreciate this interesting tension, the, the brutality of it all, that... Because they are, right, carnivorous predators, someone, some things have to die in order for them to survive. There has to be death for the sake of life. And the tension of of even the young lion cub, right, or the very young ravens. I don't know what raven babies are called. Baby ravens, right? Like they need to be fed, but they need to be fed that which has been killed. So think about that, right? There's this interesting, brutal vulnerability, even amongst the predators, so that is God saying, let, that let's talk about this, Job. Do you have the capacity to feed the predator, to provide for him? Because in providing for him, it means that there will be death in order for him to live. That balance, can we maintain that? I wasn't going to share this, but it's just a side thing, and I, I like it, Right? But, you know, in Australia, there's, there's, like, literally thousands of wild donkeys. Just donkey, at, right? Just running wild everywhere, just acting all crazy and causing, I guess, ecological problems. So, so you know what uh, conservationists, conservationists, they, they try to conserve, you know, certain animal species. You know what they have to do? They literally shoot them. They've been killing donkeys in about, like, six to 7,000 a year in the wild in Australia. They're trying to balance something that they have made an imbalance because the Europeans have brought donkeys over and they just kind of set them free. And the donkeys are just crazy, I guess, right? And they're just breeding and growing and eating crazy stuff, acting like donkeys, right? So this is an interesting thing. How do you preserve a species, right, without injuring potentially another species? You know, in Pismo Beach, see, this this is where it gets more personal to me. Pismo Beach when i was younger you used to be able to just go there and as long as you have a fishing license and a a little thing to measure clams you can just dig your feet in the in the you know in the whitewash, and then you feel a rock you pull it it's a clam and as long as it's bigger than you know i forgot what it was like five inches or something you you could just take that mess home right leave it in a little water so it spits out of sand and you can just cook and eat it it's delicious they're almost all gone from pismo beach you know why someone has told me it's because we had a, a regulation to protect wild otters now listen i like otters they're funny they like roll around they do fun right they're cute but they have run amok and they they literally wiped out the population of clams at pismo beach so i'm kind of mad at them right like see human beings we try and we should we should try to keep an ecological balance on stuff that's part of our stewardship i think but the point is who is knowledgeable enough to know exactly how to balance every single occasion only god right like how do you determine okay we need lions to live so let's just kill a bunch of these right I mean, I guess we could just kill a bunch of donkeys in Australia and bring them over to lions or, or something, right? Or, or maybe maybe a few otters, right? Or I, I don't know. I mean, we try, but God knows. And in all the wildness that is around them, the point is that God knows how to balance death and life. Death for life. The creaturely wor- world is filled with death and suffering. But it's filled with death and suffering as a means of food, life, and sustenance. That is so odd and weird, but that's the world that God has allowed to flourish. This is the world that we live in currently, a fallen world. And yes, there is to be a time when the lion will lie down with the lamb. But right now, if every lion just lies down with the lamb, there'll be no more lions. There's an interesting dilemma that, that someone much wiser than any of us must keep in perfect balance and tension. We, are, we live in a world, as the Lord is trying to, to kind of highlight to Job, the complainer, we live in a world that requires death for the sake of life. And if it's nothing else, it's an illustration of the gospel itself. We have found life, eternal life. How? To the sacrificial death of the one that should never have been killed death for life it's baked into this universe god has made it so in the creaturely world and as god observes that he's saying job can you do that can you provide for the prey do you hunt, do you know how to keep that species alive Do you know how to balance who should die and who should live? Do you have such wisdom? And of course, every rhetorical question that God asks, Job is saying, "Uh, no, no, still no, 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 no. Um, No, Lord, right? But even as he's saying no, the point is to get behind the question and ask ourselves, do I have these capacities? And I don't. We're questioning God for things that he and only he knows in terms of its fullness, why he does them. And it's not simple and linear. It's not, oh yeah, you needed to be sick at this moment so that you avoid a car accident that you would have got into if you were going. Maybe, but again, it's not typically just simple and linear. It's more difficult, more robust, more challenging, more infinite in terms of unpacking it. And that's the point. Can you balance death for life? No, Lord, we can't. Can you track the timing of life or birth? Look at verses uh, chapter 39, verses 1 through 4. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and, they del- and are delivered of their young? The young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. He comes back to knowledge again because it is an issue of knowledge. Job feels like he needs to know. Lord, I need to know why you have made me this way. As we often might, Lord, I, I, I need to know, why wasn't I a little bit taller? Why wasn't I a little bit smarter? Why wasn't I a little bit this, a little bit that? Why wasn't I born here instead of there? Why have you given these individuals to be my family, right? Now, you can go on and on and on again, and the questions that you're asking is in the question of knowledge. Lord, can you, can you satisfy my curiosity? I need, to, I need to be explained what wisdom determined this. And so the Lord is saying, okay, well, do you have knowledge? You notice the verbs there? Do you know? Do you observe? Can you number? Do you know? Job, do you have knowledge of when the mountain goats give birth or how the the calving of the does, how that happens? Can, Can you number their months, right? Uh, that they fulfill. That is interesting, right? That, that phrase, you know, can you number their months? It's kind of like our idiom, counting the days. It speaks of uh, an anticipation that, that might be, we might call it an, uh, an empathetic anticipation. It's like God is not just saying, like, listen, I know exactly, you know, when that baby doe is going to be born, I know when they're going to calve, meaning, you know, give birth. I know when these mountain goats are going to do this. I know all of that. But God's not just saying, I know it from, from a distance, like some kind of you know, supercomputer. He does. He knows every detail of it. But he's saying, can you number the months? Because I number the months. It's like saying, God is saying, have you been counting the days? Because I've been counting the days. It's almost like the Lord is saying in his creation, he looks forward to the day that those babies are born, right? When they grow up which they do super quick. Verse 4, the young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. I feel like you need to know something about some mountain goats, right? Mountain goats is a large, you know, grouping of different kind of wild goats That uh, and goats by themselves have incredible foot dexterity, meaning they have great balance and they're exceptional that way. And if you haven't seen it, um, uh, Chingino Dam in Piedmont um, Italy is unremarkable as a dam. But if you should look them up on the, uh, on, um, you know, on the internet, you will find uh, that uh, there are so many pictures of that dam, and this is the reason why. The alpine mountain goat, also known as the, the ibex, the alpine ibex, they climb up the sheer face of the dam, like, like leaning in, like on their little toes, right? So they can lick the salt off of the dam walls look it up when you have it it's outrageous they are literally hundreds of feet in the air right leaning into almost a sheer wall right keeping their footing so they could lick lick some salt is is the crazy you're like oh there's got to be salt other places this is like but this is their confidence this is what they're capable of doing this is the mountain goat right the alpine ibex and you know we often think of our young and we say, oh, man, you know, um, um, they grow up so soon. And what we mean by that is usually like, you know, um, a decade, may- maybe two decades when they finally leave our house, right? That's like, you know, two decades. They grow up so soon. It took them like 20-something years. The Ibex mountain goat, when that, that, that little baby goat, I don't, I don't know what a baby goat is named either, right? Baby... Is born right within a week. It is running on its own, independent of mom. In a week, can you imagine if you know? And we are blessed to know that there are some among us, some of our our, our moms to be, are, have have little babies that God is uh, God has created, and is. And we pray for them for their good health and that baby to be born. And when that baby is born, can you imagine in a week going, dude, why aren't you walking? Like, you know, like, I'm tired of having to pick you up and feed you. Go get something to eat. Go climb a wall and lick the salt off of it or something, right? Like, can you imagine? It's amazing. And the whole point is God is saying that he protects these. He cares for these. He's not just created them, but he watches over them with a care that suggests that I am counting the days, the months, until it is fulfilled, until that baby is born. And within a week, they're going to be jumping up, Growing strong out in the open and not having to return to mama so much. Who has knowledge of this stuff? Who keeps track of the timing of birth and life in the wild? God does. Job has been complaining, don't you care what's happening to me? Lord, do you know? Right? Do, do you have any idea how long I have been suffering? And the Lord is saying, I am in perfect control. I know, I care, I act in accordance with perfect wisdom and sovereign power. The Lord of perfect timing, that's what his wisdom means. But it promises something. It promises that whatever you're going through is not eternal. That if you have placed your faith in Christ, that as bad as it is, that a lifelong illness, uh, lifelong struggles, a difficult relationship, whatever, whatever trauma, difficult pain that you face, like, like God, the perfect God who has control over time has set a limit on every one of those things. That is a comfort to me because eternity is a lot bigger than this momentary struggle and pain. So that if there is struggle and pain, god is still under control he has everything under control and his timing is perfect his timing is perfect even in how he sent his son it was while we we're still weak at the right time at the perfect time christ died for the ungodly according to romans 5 6 and that's how he shows his love for us god knows what he's doing and yes we can become impatient but god hasn't forgotten abandoned or left us out to suffer eternally He has even our suffering in his sovereign hands. Can you track the timing of life and birth? He asked Job, can you protect the wild freedom of some of these crazy animals? Like verse 5, who has let, notice the, the, the agency, it is God that has let this happen, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom have I given the arid plains for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? Who's let the donkey just out, like just acting crazy, right? Because there are wild donkeys. I mentioned the problem of some wild donkeys in Australia, but there are wild donkeys all over the place and in many generations in the time of Job. And look at how it describes the donkey, how it relishes his own freedom and independence. Verse 7, he scorns the tumult of the city. He looks at, you know, he looks at the San Fernando Valley and says, I don't want to live amongst those guys. Lights at night and all these noises and honking and stuff going on. I don't want to hear that mess, right? He scorns that. He hears not the shouts of the driver, meaning that the individual says whack, you know, cracking the whip, driving that. Ha, 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 making the city donkeys work. He's like, I don't want any of that. Now he, verse 8, ranges the mountains as his pasture. He just goes wherever he wants all over the mountains and he just eats in pastures wherever he likes. He searches after every green thing. He goes after the little vegetation and he eats. That's the point. His uncontainable freedom. He loves it. And the implication is, and all of it is under God's sovereign control. Who let him, who let him have that freedom? God did. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Whom have I given the arid plains and the salt sea as a dwelling place? God is the one that not only gives him that freedom, but protects him in the wild. The beauty of wild animals is that if everything is kind of normal, we don't need to feed them. Well, who does? How are they provided? Well, God apparently is the one that cares for them you know, there's nothing random that happens in the universe. And you say, well, yeah, I, I know that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm serious. There's nothing random that happens in the universe. It's not to say that God causes all things in exactly the same way that he causes other things. But it's to say that nothing happens outside of God's decision. Well, how about like random things? Like, you know, you throw, throw some dice in the air. Proverbs sixteen thirty three says that the lot is cast into the lap. You know, you Throw these sticks or something. We're not exactly sure what the lot might be, right? But they land in such a way to tell you this or that. I'll give you a number. The lot is cast into the lot, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There is not one inch of, you know, unexpected wildness that happens outside the counsel of God. There is not an inch of randomness that occurs outside the, the sovereign control of God. Right? Who protects this kind of wild freedom amongst the animals? It's not Job. It's not us. God has control even of their crazy shenanigans, right? We go on. Who can harness the wildest power? I mean, power is probably what should be underlined here and less wild. Verse 9 at first might sound kind of, you know, I don't know, just kind of okay to you, right? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow ropes? Or will the harrow of the valleys um, after you? Will will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he'll return to your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? You know, it almost sounds whole home because it's like, "Well, well, yeah, can't we, Lord? Like, they use oxen all the time you know they just I guess they raise them or maybe they go catch them and then they put a you know a yoke around them and they kind of force them to work no but this is the wild ox it's almost a, a mythological creature I say almost mythological because apparently there are historical reports that there are these certain wild oxen right known as all rocks right even that sounds awesome and mighty right what is that that's an all rocks right like that thing that just the oh, all back up dude that is, sounds really powerful but it is an undomesticated ox but that was huge in fact the hebrew word the ri'am, right um it was translated like in the authorized version in the king james version sometimes as unicorn and sometimes as rhinoceros rhinoceros <laughs> rhinoceros thank you too much dinosaur on my mind *Rhinocerosaurus*. right um but there it, it's it's sometimes translated that in the old, old authorized versions and so so that came these legendary kind of mythological beasts but the point being that some of the authorizers some of the old versions try to translate it not as just ox right it was a different term it referred to a wild ox that was legendary in its power and uh and its difficulty to tame um, the psalmist David in Psalm 22 talks about it, and he says that he was rescued from the horns of the all rocks, right? From the wild oxen. And he parallels that, being rescued from the horns of the wild oxen with being rescued from the mouth of a lion, that's Psalm 22:21. So it tells you, we're not just talking about oxen, because if it's like a wild oxen, I think David Warrior, I think he's like, oh, there's an oxen. Well, let's just shuffle to the side, you know, and there's no big deal. But, you know, it would be like, oh, dude, I faced a lion. Dude, you faced a lion? That's crazy, right? Well, yeah, that is crazy. Well, that's what it's like to face an rock. It should have killed you. When Balaam wanted to speak Against Israel, remember Balaam the false prophet, he wanted to speak against Israel, um, but he spoke instead in behalf of Israel and said that God fights with overwhelming power for Israel, and he says God is for them like the horns of the all rocks of the wild oxen that 's in numbers twenty three if you 're not following what i 'm saying is we 're talking about something that at least in legend has across the shoulders, like meaning like it's like looking at you like that and across the shoulders, measured about six feet. So I'm about six feet, like finger to finger. So think about you saw an oxen, and his shoulders go from here to here. Can you imagine that? I don't want to know. I don't, I don't even like normal oxen. I don't even want to see baby oxen, right, out in the wild. Like that's yucky, right? But can you imagine something that huge, like the size of a small car coming at you? And then the whole point is, can you domesticate that? Can you harness his power? Do you, do you have confidence that, I love the second part of verse 10 when he says, well, verse 10 says, can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Will he harrow the valleys after you? Meaning, will he plow the, vo- the, the valleys as you walk? And he's just kind of following you, like plowing up all the valleys, right? Will he do that for you? It's like, no, you can't tame something that powerful and wild. This is a God thing. There are some things that only God can do. There are governances that only God is able to master, and that's the point, right? You can't harness that kind of power. Well, see, there are so many, we had to make a second section here. So E, we're still in the same section, the wildest of all God's creation. E is, can you explain the most foolish wonders? This part is just entertaining. It's entertaining for a number of reasons, but one, because the main focus here is an ostrich, right? Um, secondly, God here in verses 13 through 18 of 39, he refers to himself only in the third person. In fact, it is such an odd kind of way, there's no rhetorical questions, and it's so kind of different that the Greek translation of the Old Testament omits this passage. But it's weird that they omit this passage because every human, uh, Hebrew manuscript we have includes this might be because it sounds so ridiculous but let's read it and we'll kind of see what, what the Lord says about the ostrich it's almost like a humorous commercial break in the midst of his speech verse 13 the wings of the ostrich wave proudly see we, we know that that's ridiculous because what do the wings of the ostrich accomplish just, just saying hi uh, hey what's up man like that's they, they can't fly uh, why do they have wings I don't know why are they birds they just run on these big legs right but Are they the pinions and plumage of love? This is an interesting statement. The wings of the ostrich, he like flaps them proudly. But are they the pinions and plumage of love? And it's making fun of the ostrich because, verse 14, she leaves her eggs in the earth. She lays her egg, leaves it there on the ground, and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot can crush them. An ostrich egg can be crushed by someone walking around or by a beast coming by and trampling them verse 16 she deals cruelly with her young as if they're not hers though her labor um, though her labor be in vain yet she has no fear because God made her forget wisdom and has given her no share in understanding I mean scripture God is literally saying right and he's speaking in the third person here um, but he is literally saying the ostrich God has given right a little bit of he's dialed down the intelligence factor right not, 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 not so smart, right? Like ostriches should be extinct. They leave their eggs on the ground. They don't protect. They just leave it there and they walk away. Everybody else should be like, look at another big giant, you know, dinosaur egg. You know, let's eat. What is happening? How, how, it, how can it be so lacking in wisdom and yet provided for and surviving? And in fact, it says, the scriptures say that God has made her forget her wisdom and has given her no share in understanding. God's the one that's made her stupid. And yet, she's proud about her tiny wings that don't make her fly. But I love verse 18. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and rider. She's a dumb animal. I mean, some animals are kind of, she, she is ridiculous. She has wings and don't fly, right? She would rather run than try to fly. She lays an egg and forgets that it's early Like, who put that egg there, right? And just walks away, right? She's, she's ridiculous. But as ridiculous and lacking wisdom as she is, she has this surprising ability. She's fast. She's fast. Wait, I have, I have some, some stats here for you verse 18 says that she rouses herself to flee and she laughs at the horse in the right she mocks at the guy on a horse trying to catch her an ostrich can run like a keep about 30 to 35 miles per hour speed for miles so she could run about the same speed as a lion so a lions chasing her the lion will give up because its lack of stamina on the ostrich just be like, ha ha foo, right? Just running and just acting all crazy. Ah, who put that egg there, right? <laughs> that, that that is our ostrich, is amazing. But it could run as fast as in spurts of like 45 miles an hour. A typical horse, a normal horse found anywhere in the world, can run up to maybe 30 miles an hour. So this is true. Right, I get on my little pony, and I'm like, hey, let's go catch that giant chicken. We're going to eat that dude, right? And then it's like, wow, how come that it doesn't fly, and it runs super fast, right? It would outrun the horse and its rider. Now, granted, some of you guys are going to say, wait a minute, I'm a fan of uh, the modern American quarter horse that could run upwards of 55 miles per hour that's true we have bred certain thoroughbreds to run even faster but i'm saying in the wild or or in that day they weren't they weren't necessarily breeding horses to be super fast they're breeding them to be super strong and rider and horse could not catch this ridiculous bird if we could call it a bird right i mean explain this job it's almost like a, just like a humorous aside, and God is saying, hey, you have an explanation for something as ridiculous as an ostrich? And Job is probably like, what's an ostrich? <laughs> and I mean, it, it, ostrich comes up in the scriptures, so I bet Job has seen one, and he's probably like, that's, that's truth right there, Lord. Like, I don't know what's going on with that crazy stupid bird, right? It's, like, it's wondrous and wonderful, unpredictable and ridiculous, all in God's wisdom. God is amazing. Again, in His creativity, but also in the things that He provides so that what sounds like wisdom to our limited mind and imagination, right, is often foolishness to God. That's how God describes it in 1 Corinthians 1. For since it's the, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, meaning the Son of God, take on human form, dies on a cross so that he can forgive us our sins. God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign. We need a sign. We're going to have a sign. That's how we work. Greeks seek wisdom. It needs to be wisdom. It needs to be proven. It needs to be something that's intellectually stimulating. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, but we preach Christ crucified. This doesn't sound like wisdom. He says to both Jews and Greeks, Right? It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There are things that God has created if for no other purpose to demonstrate that you would never have thought of this. You would never come up with this. You don't have that kind of creative ability or that kind of insight to control. F. Can you create terrible warriors? A terrible, not like, an, oh man, that, that warrior's the worst, but as in, that is terrifying. Verses 19 through 25 take an extended look at the idea of the war horse. This is the single greatest um, military advantage in the ancient world right this is equivalent to i don't know what what would be the equivalent to a land you know vehicle that that is a a tank i guess right it'd be the equivalent of that today in a battle on the fields listen to his description do you give the horse his might do you clothe his neck with a mane and the word mane in the hebrew is derived from a word that means to thunder and it speaks of this, this storm-like power. He is a terrifyingly strong horse. Verse 20, do you make him leap like a locust? Like think of that the, the, the imagery there, right? Like He's like just jumping over spears and over other humans that are armed to the teeth. He just jumps over them. His majestic snorting is terrifying. He's just like, you know how horses be doing that when they're kind of, I think they're mad. I'm not exactly sure what caused them to, they're like, like that, and they like, snort like that dude, that is terrifying if it's a war horse, right? He paws in the valley and exalts in his strength, meaning like he's like digging the ground, anxious to go, right? He goes out to meet the weapons. He sees weapons. He's like, let's go, let's go. He doesn't back down. He doesn't fear. He wants to go. Verse 22, he laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. War horses are trained to be comfortable in the midst of battle to run out into danger, right? To smell blood and terror and sweat and just go, I'm in, let's go. He laughs at this, uh, the scriptures say. God continues on in verse 23. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, the javelin. So he's armed up. He has these things strapped to them and they're all like kind of waving as he's like jumping through the air and flying towards the battle. Verse 24, with fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. It's like he's just eating up the ground as he's moving. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He's like, finally. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains, and the shouting. Man, for all of its amazing power. If you've heard me talk about horses, I like horses, but only from a distance. They're, they're just too even the calm domestic horses like you ride on like at the fairs you know that if they just got mad at you they're like man what are you looking at pow like they, would, they could kill you just pow just one leg they're super strong can you imagine training a horse all its life to look forward to battle that's not a horse you want to be looking at right that's not a horse you want to be messing around with oh, stupid horse stupid horse right like it could kill you it looks forward to killing you that's outrageous For all of its power and all of its courage, the question, do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck? Do you make him leap? tells you that there is a master that has created him to be what he is. For all the power of the war horse, all of its strength, its nature, its abilities, God is the one that has created him, God is the one that has fashioned him, God is its master. And he's telling Job, Job, have you mastered wild animals like that? I created that. I'm master over that. you worry that I I don't know how to control the wild and untamable things in your life. And the last point God makes in his speech, can you teach the unreachable predators? Verse 26 to 30 talks about predation again, right? Predators again. But look at how he talks about it from the sky. Is it by your understanding, is it by your understanding, as he returned to constant knowledge and wisdom, that the hawk soars and spreads its wing towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, the rocky crag and stronghold, nobody can get to him. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away, from miles away, he could see his prey. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there he is. Verse 30 is gory, right? And, and you know, in my mind... Lord, that's not necessary. You don't got to bring that up, man. But he is saying there are, again, and this is the tension that God seems to be baking into these questions, right? Here are predators that come from the sky. They look at stuff from like miles away, and they go, okay, that's what I'm going to get, right? And when they kill that thing, they bring it home, and then the baby eagles, the young ones, are eating it, and blood is all over their beaks. They're sucking up the blood. And the dead carcass is there in its nest. It's a gruesome picture. And it's a gruesome picture that just kind of unveils how crazy all of this can be. The balancing of life for death, right? The balancing of predator and prey. And in all of that, the vulnerability even of the predator, these young ones need to be sucking up some of that blood. They need to grow stronger so they could go and they could continue that species. And God's point is, man, can you teach them that? Is it your understanding that's told the hawk how to soar? And how to migrate to the south? Is it by your command that they chose to live that high? Is it by your enablement that they accomplish these things? The point is, God is not, right, does not simply permit predators to kill their prey, He commands them to. God's defense of His counsel is not pictures in, in nature that you find in the Audubon Society. That's the right group, right? That's the, that's the bird group, right? Okay. I, I almost thought that was that, you know, that German highway, right, where you just, different Audubon, right? It's, a, right? it's not these picturesque pictures of these nice birds. It's not, you know, National Geographic. No, God's point is nature untamed is wild, dangerous, powerful, amazing, and in absolute control because God can balance all things and he controls all things perfectly. So here's his challenge, and we'll move quickly through these two. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 40. God's challenge. Simple enough, right? He just asked Job, and the Lord said to Job, verse 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. God lays down the concluding challenge. Let the one that knows better, that can find fault. Remember King Alfonso, the learned of Spain? I would have given God some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. And he's like, okay, you got some faults to find. Come on, you want to contend with the Almighty? Would you like to argue with the God of the universe? Come and answer. The point is, if we consider all the strangeness, like ostriches, the wildness, like free-roaming donkeys, the power, like, like the aurochs, or courage, like the warhorse, right? And you balance the vulnerability of every living creature, even predators, Do we have that kind of superhuman knowledge to challenge God and ask God, dude, do you know what you're doing, Lord? Do you you know who I am? I can't believe you're letting this happen to me, right? Do you have any wisdom for how to handle these things? And God's point is just look to the creaturely, right, um, creation all around you. In Matthew 10, Jesus uses the same Illustration, He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is in control of their life. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. I want to give you a quote. All right or the quote comes after Job's response, sorry. Job's first initial response to the first sermon comes in verses three to five. It just emphasizes his absolute smallness, and I like it. Job answered the Lord and said, "'Behold, I am of small account, "'what shall I answer you? "'I lay my hand on my mouth, I have spoken once, "'and I will not answer twice, I will not proceed.'" He says, one, I am small, I need to shut up and cover my mouth. He says, "'I have spoken once.'" The once, twice kind of way is saying, I've spoken once, and I'm not going to answer anymore. I've spoken twice, I will proceed no further, meaning I have spoken again and again and again, and I've gone too far, I've got nothing to say. Right? Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament um, scholar, says, um, God's speech cuts us down to size, treating us not as philosophers but as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. Um, I think, could I leave you? I got a bunch of quotes, but I'll just leave you with this, right? Um, in the arena of adversity, and I think I have that, I have a quote by Jerry Bridges in his excellent book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. If you don't have that, you should, you should pick that up. That's uh, excellent for every Christian. In the arena of adversity, scriptures teach us three particular things that we need to remember about God. One, God is perfect in love, he is infinite in wisdom, and he is absolute in his sovereignty. In this quote that Jerry Bridges gives us, he, he attributes it to some anonymous source, and we don't know, but kind of captures those three. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. This world is wild and dangerous and fraught with dangers as long as it is touched by sin. But the wonder, the power, the majesty is that God is still in control. And that's what we rest on. That's what we have faith in. That's what we believe. Not just of this world and its creatures and its creation, but also of our own salvation.